Welcome to the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm your host, Paula Crossfield, a Vedic astrologer and business coach helping you to live in your purpose. And that is what this podcast is all about. So let's jump right in to the conversation. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. I'm Paula Crossfield. Thank you so much for being here and welcome if you are new this week. I am so grateful for your presence. This week, I have a really exciting interview with Dawn Young, who is a soul midwife. And we had a wonderful conversation about death and how to make death more peaceful and comforting for those who are dying. Dawn has done hospice volunteer work since 2012. She also co-facilitates a community grief group in Astoria, Oregon, which is where I used to live and how I met Dawn. She's a member of No One Dies Alone, NODA. So she's a volunteer at the local hospital there. And she trained to become a soul midwife starting in 2015 with Felicity Warner, who's the founder of the soul midwife movement in the UK. So this conversation goes deep into what we need to know as the living to both become ready for death, but also to take care of those who are dying and and to notice the process that they're undergoing. Um, We also talk about all the people who've passed away alone in this pandemic and how this has changed her work and how she started this journey. It's really fascinating. And I hope that you enjoy this conversation here. It is nearing the dark winter in full effect. I thought this was a wonderful time to take some time and take some talk about this very important subject. Dawn also, with two other soul midwives, does a Zoom presentation every one or two months where they talk about dying and how to prepare called Dying to Chat. It's free and all you do is send her an email and she will send you an invite. Her email is daysoulwork at gmail.com and you can find that also in the show notes. If you are interested at all in one-on-one coaching, I also wanted to let you know that if you're an online business owner, a spiritual coach, guide, or healer looking for support in your business, I'm offering a few spots to one-on-one coaching clients. And there is a link in the show notes to find out more and to book a call. So if that's something that's interesting to you, there are only a few spots. So I wanted to make sure you knew that. Please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Dawn Young. Hello, Dawn. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Paula. I'm happy to be here. I'm so excited to have you. And this is a perfect conversation as we're in, you know, wintertime coming on. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful for you making the time. You know, you were one of the last people I did a reading for in person before the pandemic. So I've just been reflecting on how much has changed since then. And you've always inspired me with your dedication to your work as a soul midwife. So could you talk a little bit about what a soul midwife is and how did you come to be one? 
Sure. A soul midwife is a um, holistic and spiritual companion to the dying in their family. It's very similar to uh, death doula, except that we feel we do more spiritual work at the end of life than a death doula per se or a doula for the dying. Let's see. I, I think I became involved many years ago. I worked in a children's hospital in New Jersey. And I was a pediatric echo tech. So I did ultrasounds of children and babies' hearts. So we got to see a lot of children that were dying. They were dying of cancer. They had very complex congenital heart defects. There were children that were, you know, involved in car accidents uh, where they were, you know, going to be using their organs to donate the parents and so forth. So a lot of it was good and happy news because murmurs and things like that were something that were not that serious, but there were some very serious things that I witnessed, I guess. And that that just made me more aware of dying. And I can give you an example. I was called to the PICU, which is a pediatric intensive care unit, 13-year-old boy. When I got to the room, the rooms are very small, ICU rooms. They're just tiny. You know, an ultrasound machine is huge, and it takes up so much room. And when I went into the room, the patient was in the bed. His mom and dad were over on the other side of the room, and I had to finagle this big, huge machine into essentially uh, do an ultrasound of his heart because he was dying. He was on life support and they were going to be donating his heart. It was just very overwhelming for me. I had a son about the same age and I just remember feeling this overwhelming sense of sadness that, you know, I was there to do this task just to mechanically do what I had to do and then leave. As I was doing the test, and it took quite a while, I was in there alone before my doctor came in, the cardiologist, and I was, you know, I'm tall, I was bent in this most awkward position because I was trying to, to get, there was so many, you know, IVs hanging and things that were keeping him alive. It's, it's, unless you've seen it, it's really difficult to explain, but all of these things were hanging and And I was so uncomfortable. My back was killing me. And I thought, don't you dare, don't you dare complain because what you're witnessing here for the parents is just so much more difficult than how you're feeling physically. And anyway, my my physician finally came and he took over. There was something so overwhelming to me about my job was done and I was supposed to leave. That's what we did. The doctor came and he would talk to them. But I, in my heart, I could not leave that room without acknowledging the parents and their loss and how they were feeling. So I did. I went over and I just said, thank you so much for letting me do this test. And I'm so very sorry, you know, that I'm having to do it. And then I left. But it just, it was at that point that I thought, that's not the way to treat somebody. You know, when somebody that they love so much is, is dying or will soon be dead, there's a better way to do this. So that's how it started. 
That's the first instance. And then I uh, moved to Oregon and I became a hospice volunteer with a local hospice. And I was a compassionate companion for the dying at a local care facility, which is where I got most of my experience. And I really loved it. I, I think I got more knowledge there than anywhere else. I also am a No One Dies Alone volunteer. And that's something at our local hospital. And I do a community grief group, co-facilitate a community grief group for hospice. So it was during this time that I was sitting with these people that I learned about um, being a sole midwife. And it was a woman named Felicity Warner in uh, the UK that had been doing this work and had a school for 25 to 30 years. And when I read about how she felt and how, what her aims were, and it all made sense to me because so many of the things she talked about, I had seen with the patients that I had been sitting with. So that's kind of how I came into it, I would say, as a compassionate companion in a local nursing home for people that were dying and either had no family or had limited people that were visiting. And so I would go and sit with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I saw a lot. Yes. And as you're talking, I'm, you know, just reflecting on your chart, which has so much going on in the 12th house for those who know something about astrology. Dawn has Mercury, Venus and Saturn all in Libra in her 12th house. So that means Venus and Saturn are both very strong. And the 12th house is all about dying. It's about being in service to those that are elderly or who are in that last stage of life, you know, and, and it being a spiritual practice. And from what you've said, I really, it sounds like this is really a spiritual practice for you. Would you say that's true? Oh, definitely. To me, dying is not so much a physical aspect, but a spiritual and emotional aspect and I think that's the part that is so interesting to me is the spiritual and the, the mystery and the unknown, because there's so much we don't know. It just is really uh, fascinating to me. Can you talk a little bit about that? I know I've heard you talk before about what you've observed. You've sat with dozens of people as they were dying. That's mm -hmm. a really unique experience. Not a lot of people have had. So can you talk a little bit about the death process and what it's like to sit with somebody while they're releasing from their body? Sure. Um, let me just start by the physical aspect, because that's what people are more familiar with. And we kind of shy away from that in the work that we do, because there are nurses and medical people that are taking care of their physical things. But generally, it starts out by them stopping. They stop eating like solid foods is usually the first thing that they stop eating. Then they have soft food and, and liquid. But then as it progresses, they're not interested in eating and they're not interested in drinking. Then, you know, the body's starting to change. So their blood pressure will change and their respirations will change and things start shutting down. So it's a it's a gradual process. And if it's somebody, if I, I use like uh, the elderly, you know, first it's they stop eating and then gradually each change kind of comes on board until finally, I would say their last 
uh, thing would probably be their hearing that goes. And usually before they die, they're uh, in a quiet, they're unresponsive, but they do hear. As a soul midwife, we look, for instance, when we walk into a room and we're, we're going to be meeting somebody, some soul midwives will start when a person's been diagnosed with, you know, either they're in hospice or they know what they have is terminal and they're preparing to die, but they're still conscious and able to make decisions. I usually see people very close to the end of life just because of the age of the clients that I work with. So there's four stages that soul midwives kind of gear, you know, how we're going to help this person. The first one is earth and earth. The earth stage can be 10 years in the making. So it's as a person ages or if they're, you know, terminal, they kind of go through the same thing. So they become fatigued. They're weak. They've lost their um, zest for life. They're not interested so much in uh, socialization or going places or doing things. The next stage would be water stage. It's very common. They become incontinent. When they eat, they may dribble, you know, out of the corners of their mouth. Their eyes may water. Their nose may water. They may have swelling. Their, their circulation is slowing down, things like that. So, and they cry. They cry a lot. They're, they're sad and they're not helpless, but they're, they're needing help. They're very emotional. So that's the water stage. Fire stage is, it can be a lot of different ways to, it can be the dark night of soul, terminal agitation. There's many ways of thinking about it, but their, their temperature could change. They could be very feverish or they could be very cold. They can pick at their bedclothes. They can be restless. They can be very irritable. That usually precedes. For me, that stage to me is when they've acknowledged that they're going to die. They're going through that time in their life when they're rectifying everything and they're finally coming to grips with, I'm going to die. And so it's a very, to me, it's the hardest phase to watch when somebody's in that because it, and it's, it's very upsetting uh, to families to see the person because they're, they're not understanding, you know, what's going on. And it's to me, if their physical needs have been taken care of, if they're not in pain, then you know it's an emotional and a spiritual point that they're going through where they're reviewing their life and it can cause them a lot of discomfort, but not physical so much. And then the final stage is air, which is when they've become usually very peaceful. They're, they're, Breathing is changing, but they're, they're very quiet, they're peaceful. And to me, death, if it follows those stages, death is very peaceful. It's just the difference between one breath, you know, breath in, breath out, and then you just don't take another breath. And so um, the air stage is kind of when that you're in two places at one time. I think you're you're here, but you're there. 
And it's also if they if they are conscious at all, um, they may talk about seeing visions and so forth. So that's kind of air. Fire and air are usually where I am when I go to visit somebody. They've mm. they've already done uh, the two, you know, the earth and the and the water. So do these stages sometimes overlap, or are they always kind of one uh, and the other? I think, no, I definitely think they can, earth and, and water can overlap. I have a friend right now who's elderly and she's kind of in both places right now at once. Mm-hmm. Uh, fire, fire, I think is different. I think once you go from fire to air, it's, it's a very distinct passage for me, what I observe. So you so, you said to me once that death is like birth. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, anybody that's had a baby knows that labor can last a very long time and it's very difficult. It's not something that happens very quickly, although traumatically uh, death can be very quickly. But dying takes days. It can take as you slowly the organs are shutting down and things are changing. It's, it's a very long process and people always want to know how much longer do they have? And we don't know the answer to that. And nobody really does. Somebody can follow along and then all of a sudden they're gone instantly. Or you think, I can't believe they're still alive. You know, this has been going on for days. They haven't eaten anything. They haven't drank anything. And still they're alive. So what I think, what I've observed is people that have outstanding issues that they haven't taken care of in their life, like, you know, not talking to a family member or things that they've done that that they wish they had made changes for. If they haven't taken care of that up until this point, I think their death will be more difficult and it will last longer because they need to sort that out, even if it's just themselves before they go. And I think as a soul midwife, that's where we come in and that's where we try to do that work of helping them release what we call soul wounds that are still stuck. Um, It could be a woman that maybe years ago had a miscarriage or had an abortion that nobody knew about. Those kind of things can really impact how long you go through the process of uh, that fire stage, I believe. That's, that's my opinion, but that's what I've observed. So we try to help by doing energy work, uh, Reiki or uh, sound energy, anything we can to help release those wounds that are you know, it's all energetic. It's stuck in there. It needs to come out before somebody can pass. And generally, once once that's happened, then they can go. So is it usual that they're talking to you and telling you about things that they may not have told anyone? Or is it energetic most of the time? It's, maybe for me, both? it's energetic because they're usually not making a lot of sense by the time I'm seeing them. Although some will. Um, I remember I had a a uh, male friend once who was dying. But as I entered the room, he said, everybody, I'd like you to meet Dawn. 
And there was nobody in the room, but he and I, but he said, everyone, this is Dawn. So I knew that he was seeing other people in the room and he was not, you know, sometimes people think, oh, it's the medication. It's this, it's that. It isn't. It isn't. They're really seeing that. And I believe that I've seen them, you know, their eyes tracking in the corner of the room. They're seeing things. The same man said to me, you know, do you see the little boy standing beside my bed? And I said, no, I don't see him, but I know that you do. Do you recognize him? And he says, no, I don't. I said, I know that he's there and he must be there, you know, for you as a friend. And, and But he didn't recognize who he was, but he was not hallucinating. He absolutely was not because he was able to respond appropriately to questions. And so that's the mystery. That's the mysterious part of of it, but I truly believe that they're seeing things that we can't even fathom. So tell me after having, you know, sat with so many people, like what would be your advice to the living? Keep your relationships current. I would say number one, if if you've had issues with somebody in your family, try to take care of that. Don't wait until it's too late because it not only is difficult for the person dying, which is who I'm concerned with, but for the one that's left, for the survivor, to not have made peace with that is also going to be something that they carry with them. Keep your relationships current and healthy would be number one. Because I think in the end, it's really all about relationships and love. That's what matters. That's what's what really matters to people when they're dying. It's not what job they had or it's the people in their lives and how, how they affected them or, you know, how meaningful those people were to them. I think that's really what it's all about. It's about connection and love. I'm curious, you know, it's been almost a two year period now where so many people have been dying alone and I'm curious how it's changed your work and also your thoughts on that and what people can do? Well, it, it certainly has changed my work because we really haven't been able to go into facilities, even as hospice volunteers, um, we haven't been allowed to go into places, number one, because of their safety, the, you know, the, the people in the, in the nursing homes and hospitals, but also, you know, for our own sake, for not being exposed to people that may actually have COVID or something like that. But the woman that uh, trained me, Felicity Warner, said something that really made an impact on me is that people have been dying alone for a long time. It isn't just with COVID. Death is like your last, uh, your last hurrah on earth, your final chapter. And it shouldn't be alone and it shouldn't be frightened. It should be embraced by the people you love, whether it's friends, family, whoever, and knowing that you're loved, you're safe, and you're not alone. I think that that's what matters. Uh, I feel really bad for the families of the people that have died because they still have this open wound of not being there and, and feeling that they 
you know, in some way have let their family member that died down, I would say spiritually, you can always go back to that person. And whether through meditation or prayer and just tell them how much you cared about them, how much you miss them, and that because of circumstances beyond your control, you weren't able to be there, but that you would have been if you could. And I think we can all do that. Uh, it's very easy energetically through energy, through thought, through, you know, when you, uh, I can't think of the word, but, you know, when you go to meditate and your intention, sorry about that, your intention, you know, make an intention that I'm trying to reach my loved one. And, and this is what I want to say. And I really believe that that can, can heal, can help people heal. Beautiful. So I'm curious, like if you could wave a magic wand or something and try to get our society to think more about death, what would that look like for us to have a different experience of, of understanding death? Well, I think it would be taking them out of medical facilities and bringing them home, home where they're comfortable, where it's the things and the people that they love. And it's really just tender, loving care. It's not medical equipment, loud noises, interruptions, trying everything to keep somebody alive that their body's saying, no, it's time to go. I think the kind thing um, and what I would wish for would be to be at home with the people that I love. And, and sometimes, as frightening as it may seem, it, it's very healing for both the person dying and, and their loved ones, whoever that is, that they can care for them and uh, make those final days meaningful to show them how much you love them. And, and if you couldn't do that, if you can't have them home for whatever reason, I would say if you're going to see somebody who's dying, that if you're allowed in, that the way to go in is to slow yourself down. You don't want to go in full of energy or you're frightened because of all the medical equipment or whatever. You just need to put all your things aside because you're there for them. So you slow yourself down. You Get yourself in a very calm place before you go into the room. And then when you're in there, you just sit close. You touch them. You hold their hand. You look them in the eye. You speak softly. And you remain calm. And that will help them be calm. So that's why I would recommend if they're in a facility. But if you could have them at home. I think that's where we really, truly would all want to be. Years ago, in indigenous cultures, the whole village was involved in someone dying. You know, it wasn't here. We kind of, we put them in a hospital and we keep trying and trying and trying. And it's a failure for the medical system if the person dies. That's, that's how they feel. When in reality, their time, their physical time here is up. And it's much better to go peacefully 
and calmly than to be covered up in machines and IVs and uh, noise and commotion and, you know, frantic energy than to be peaceful at home in your own bed or a bed, you know. One thing I love about you, Donna, is you're just so good at talking about death with this really peaceful conception, you know, that it's Mm -hmm. not, it's not like the end of the world, you know, and I think our culture thinks of death as being not just a failure from the medical perspective, but like taboo and like all of us are going to die, you know? And so for me, when I started on my, my spiritual journey, I understood that the primary thing I was doing was coming to terms with my own death. And in doing that, I could live my life freely, you know, and I have so many older people in my life who are in complete denial, Right. certain family members that I actually really worry about because I'm partially responsible for them mm-hmm. <laughs> because like for my, my, my dad, for example, who won't right. even have a conversation. And he's in his seventies and he won't have a conversation about something that's very real Mm -hmm. and if not imminent, it's going to happen soon at some point. And so it's really hard. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for people who may be struggling with this, maybe there's family members that are in denial or they're in denial of their own death. Like what, what advice would you give? Well, I'm actually reading a very good book. It's called Listen, and it's uh, by Dr. Catherine Mannix, and she's a um, a palliative care physician in the UK. But she talks about how how to start difficult conversations, and it's really something that we need to talk about because if we don't, and the person dies, we don't know what they would have wanted. Do they want to be buried? Where you know, if if they haven't made plant, where would they want to be? What Would they want a service? Who would they want to officiate? Who would they want, even as they're dying, who who would they want to be there with them? And who would they not want? Who would not make them comfortable? And if they Um, have assets, what what is going to happen to those? Because I know somebody who had a stroke recently and was completely mute. She couldn't even talk. She couldn't sign anything. And she Mm -hmm. didn't have an executor. She didn't have a will. And she had a bunch of assets and they went directly to a distant relative because, and that wasn't her wish. Yeah. She had vocalized her wish, but she hadn't put it on, in writing. So no right. one could do anything about it. It's very important to write it down. And I, I can give you an example too. My brother, he's a couple of years older than me, was in a very serious motor vehicle accident this summer. They really weren't sure he was going to make it. I mean, it was serious. He was ejected from the car. He wasn't wearing a seatbelt. He had had, they thought he had had a stroke, but I think he had an arrhythmia that caused him to pass out. But anyway, he was going fast, you know, as, as he passed out, his foot hit the gas. And so he was going fast. So anyway, he, he was very critical in the hospital. He ended up being there for a month, but his fiance who they were supposed to be married the following week after this accident, mm. they had done some paperwork that they had filled out. I got to see the paperwork while he was in the hospital because number one, I assumed I was the nearest relative, but he had appointed her because they were going to be married, which is fine. I had no problem with that, but I got to read where 
he wanted uh, his ashes to be distributed. And he had this long list, his first wife, he has her ashes. And then he had a longtime girlfriend. He has some of her ashes. He has his best friend's ashes and one other friend. And he wants all of those in his to be partially in Vermont and the rest to come out to Oregon, (laughs) where I live. And I never knew that. He never, ever discussed that with me. He never told me that or mentioned it. And I would never know that those were his wishes if I hadn't actually seen it written down in his writing. Yeah. That that's what he wanted. And is he okay? Yes. I saw him at Thanksgiving. Yes, he is. He's very alert mentally. Physically, he's still, uh, you know, he had 12 broken ribs, two punctured lungs, a broken Mm. sternum. So he's still kind of hunched over a little bit because he's still working on healing. But yeah, I mean, it was the same, same brother. Yeah. Giving his younger sister a lot of guff for the holidays but fun and it was really good to see him so yeah so that that's definitely a happy ending but that just made me realize so much more how we need to write things down and and make sure that the people in our family know about it yeah you know I, I I can tell you from the grief group that I work in that so many things happen after the death that the whole family in places where they're not speaking or they're furious, you know, because it wasn't talked about before then. So I'm going to make sure that my two sons know exactly what's going on. Uh, We have it in our will that this is what we want. And, and I want them to understand that, you know, nothing, none of this is to cause problems, but they need to realize that we want them to be, treated evenly and that is our wish and um it's tough sometimes families really get in a row over who got what or mom promised them that but the other sister took it and it's that part about uh death is is really ugly mm. and i think it could be avoided with some hard conversations yes great so we'll put the name of that book in the show notes and so I've always been so struck by how clearly intuitive you are. You have such a strong intuition. I remember I met when I met you, you were running a wellness space in Astoria, Oregon, where I used to live. Uh-huh. And you got some really clear guidance that it was time for you to step back and really focus on this work. And you just, you did that. So uh-huh. I'm wondering if you, like this, the whole point of this podcast is living in your purpose. And so I interview people who right. really are living in their purpose like yourself. Mm-hmm. So can you just talk about like what that means to you and what that looks like day to day or, you know, as you evolve your career? Well, I'm not sure I have a very profound answer for that, but I, I just know seeing somebody dying, um, I've actually seen myself in that person. And that's hard to explain because you don't look alike, but it's the connection. I see you. You see me. And it's that connection with one another that's so important. I can't stress that enough. I I really believe that any work I do is to let 
Others know that they're seen and they're heard, that I hear them and I see them, and that they matter. You know, nothing could be more hurtful to me than to have someone that that I love or care about not know how much they mean to me, whether they're a friend or a family member. That's what drives me. Uh, my children, I absolutely adore my children. I, I just love them to death. And even now, sometimes, uh, you know, they're grown, they're in their 30s. I will say something and I can tell it's, it's hurt them, you know, even though it's what I think my job as a mother, constructive criticism or whatever. And if I sense that, I always apologize. As parents, you hear, oh, you know, parents have damaged their children or whatever. I would never, ever want that to happen. I I just want my children to know and my spouse and my family that I love them dearly and that anytime I've hurt them, I'm sorry. I never meant to. I, I just want, you know, that's what I want anybody that knows me to realize that that they matter. If I've done anything to hurt you, it was unintentional, and I'm sorry. So I guess that's the place that I live from. I have to say sorry a lot, actually. (laughs) But I think about where, because I can read body language pretty well from all the work I've done energetically. So um, when I do hurt them, I, you know, right away, I tell them I'm sorry that I love them. And it's, so. it's really fascinating because you're ruled by Mars and Mars is such a strong energy. It's in your second house, which is the the throat. So when you have mm-hmm. Mars in the second, you can say things that are full of fire. You know, you've got the nodes there as well. So it's like send stuff out into the universe very quickly. Right. And so there's a process that you have obviously over gone through in your lifetime to work on refining the fire in your throat so that you can speak with clarity about an unusual subject for our culture right? and create action plans for somebody in the end of their life. Like you've been Mm -hmm. able to refine that fire so that it's not just always coming out in these words. Right. Right. (laughs) That's such a beautiful thing. Well, thank you. Yeah. And so like, as far as maybe how to better listen to your intuition, do you have any guidance around that? I just think it may come naturally to me, but but I I think if you feel a certain way very strongly, that that's your intuition talking to you. And I think you have to listen. Or if it comes out of nowhere, that's a direct hit that you need to pay attention to this. I mean, that that's what I do. If I hear things repeated, you know, within the space of a few days or a week, the same thing, then that makes me curious about how does that pertain to me? I think that's all I could say about it. I really don't have any philosophy for for intuition, but I just, because I'm older now, you know, people, I think uh, certainly our culture doesn't value the elderly. And I can tell you exactly that when I turned 65, I kind of went from being an adult to being a senior. Like overnight, you're somebody else. You're, mm-hmm. you know, even though nothing's changed but the calendar, you know, we've lived through a lot and we've experienced a lot. People that are 
70, 80, and 90 have a lot of information and have seen things. And I think it's a shame that we don't listen more to what they have to say. You know, the world is just moving so fast. And I I just went back to New Jersey, and I'm not saying this to offend anybody, but life there was fast, and it still (laughs) is. Everything is quick and speedy, and the driving and the service and everything. It's just, and it's so much nicer here in Oregon where it's more peaceful and calm because that resonates more with me than that hyped up energy that just is distracting and uh, causes stress. Yeah. And it comes full circle to talking about indigenous wisdom because in indigenous Mm -hmm. cultures, elders are highly valued. Right. And their presence is a gift to this world. You know, the more that we can learn from these indigenous wisdom systems, I believe the better off we're going to be and we're going to be in better alignment with the earth, with ourselves, you know, humanity. Yeah, exactly. Is there a way that people can get in touch with you or that you, you know, is there anything that you want people to know here as we get into the, I'm going to do um, my uh, email for anything to do with death and dying is day d-a-y soul work so one word day soul work at gmail.com that's very generous of you (laughs) can reach out and ask me any questions and if i don't know i have a plethora of information from other soul midwives around the world that you know we have a, a place where we can ask each other questions and suggestions one other thing i did want to mention because i know you're involved in essential oils. I'm not sure if you still are or not, but they can be helpful, you know, with people's energy. The the vibration of the oil can help people in different in those different elements, you know, the earth, the air, to help calm them down or to not so much to put the oils on the person, but to disperse it in the air or something. Um, it can be helpful different oils. Um, so that's something, if somebody had a question about that, I, I would want to probably look it up and be sure that I was giving the right information, but they can be very helpful because each oil has a vibrational frequency that can match the phase, uh, that that person might be in. And it could be one way of helping to soothe them through that transition period. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Mm -hmm. I have a few rapid fire questions for you. Are you game for these? Okay, sure. (laughs) I don't know how rapid my response will be, but yeah, go ahead. No stress. Okay. So what is one piece of advice that has really helped you in your life? Keep your relationships current. That's the biggest one that I think is something I live by. When you feel anxious, confused, or frustrated, what is the first thing you do to ground yourself? I separate myself from everybody else and go, I think I'm an introvert. So I like to be quiet when I'm overwhelmed or stressed or frustrated or whatever. I need to be alone to process what's going on and then to calm myself down. So definitely being, being uh, alone. Mm. What is your favorite hot beverage? coffee <laughs> that's Love by it. far the 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 one that gets mentioned the most 
Is it? Yeah. And what about your last meal on earth? What would that be? Probably macaroni and cheese. Oh, (laughs) crusty on the top and Mm. lots of it. Do you have a morning routine and what part, if any, is non-negotiable? I don't really have a morning routine because I'm going to blame it on my husband. He's, (laughs) He's up two hours before I get up. And so when I get up, he's ready to talk and discuss all kinds of important things. So if I could have a routine, it would be to wake up by myself in a quiet house and, you know, just settle into the day, like enter it gracefully and quietly, not not with a lot of questions and energy and attention, I guess. <laughs> that might not be nice, but that that's what I would do quietly. No, it's totally, <laughs> that's what I try to do. So tell us about a person who inspires you and why. It would be my son's uh, godmother who died this year. She was born in England and was a child during World War II when the bombings were happening. And so a lot of her life was frantic and her mother died during childbirth. And she just had so, so many disappointments in life, hardships. And she was probably the most spiritual, religious, loving, giving person I've ever met. It just always amazed me that she could meet each difficulty and still be spiritual and still be happy to be alive. And her quest for knowledge and so forth was overwhelming to me, really, that she could have so many things go wrong, but yet she persevered and was loving and giving. So her name was Elizabeth Carroll, but she, I think, is a person that's really always uh, just made me realize that, you know, you can overcome anything with a spiritual practice. Beautiful. So something that people might not know about you. That I love glitter. (laughs) I love anything flashy, sparkles, uh, sequins. I I think I might have been a gypsy in a past life because I'm I'm all into sparkle and uh, shimmer and shine. Beautiful. So you mentioned one book earlier. Is there another book that you would suggest or that you're reading right now? None that I can recall right off the top of my head. I'm I'm kind of in the space now, but um, I do belong to a book club and we usually read spiritual books, a book. uh, Let's see if I can even read into the magic shop by, I can't remember. I think his last name is Doka or Jim Doka. I'm not sure, but into the magic shop was another beautiful book that I love that I've, I've read more than once, but um, as a spiritual book, it's, it's really a good one. I haven't heard of that. I'll look it up. Yeah, it's great. What is one thing that's bringing you joy right now? My grandson. Aww. I have a new new grandson, four months old. So it's uh, seeing me through the eyes of a, you know, a baby and how happy they are and everything's new and exciting. And so it, it just, it does, it brings me great, great joy to, to have a grandchild. Beautiful. Well, that's it for the rapid fires. Do you have any parting thoughts before we... Up off? No, just um, to be gentle with yourselves and others and realize that we're all in this together and what you do to another will affect you. 
I think you talk about karma and so forth, but I, I really feel like we just need to take each person's heart into consideration. However, we respond to them or what we do with them, or it's important. Keep your relationships current and be loving and kind. That's what I hope to offer the world. I love it. Thank you so much, Dawn. For your oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Weave Your Bliss podcast. We hope it was inspiring for you. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment for us. I want to thank the team at Team Podcast who helped get this podcast out to you. And also to thank the musicians who were the creators of this beautiful music we're listening to now. It comes from an album, Fragments of a Season, by Alexis Georgopoulos and Jeffrey Cantuladesma. So check it out wherever you get your music. Have a wonderful day, and we will connect soon on a future episode. Thank you.